and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah. Kylie, are you ready to bring us through time? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I've changed it up on episode 91. I was like, what's happening? (laughs) Take me back, Kylie, in the Wayback Machine. Well, we're not going that far back. We, oh. We're going to 1930. So it is the sometimes not so long ago. Right. Well, it's a Kylie not so long ago. <laughs> a Jonathan not so long ago is much closer than 1930. It's within the last century. To me, hardly. that's not so long ago. <laughs> Almost hardly at this point. There's a 10 year, well, there's a eight year buffer. Math. <laughs> Anyways, I'm ready. All right, so this week I am going to cover the mysterious 1930 disappearance of a New York State Supreme Court justice. So we have three episodes in a row about things going missing. I like it. Yeah, that tracks. Brinks robbery, Mona Lisa, disappearance of a justice. I wish some other Supreme Court justices would disappear. Hmm, interesting take. Womp womp. It's almost like the majority of Americans agree. (laughs) Anyway... Before we get uh, too political, and before we get to his actual disappearance... Get too political. We currently have a PSA about abortion rights that's happening before the show even starts. (laughs) You are correct, sir. (laughs) Anyway, we need to get to know this man first. (laughs) His name was Joseph Force Crater. First off, what a name. Yeah, Force Crater... Heck yeah. <laughs> Joseph Force Crater. We can drop the Joseph. This is Force Crater, Supreme Court Justice. I can't with this name. I'm Welcome sorry. to the sci fi dystopia. <laughs> right? Anyway, Crater was born on January 5th, 1889, in Easton, Pennsylvania, and was the eldest of four children born of Frank Ellsworth Crater and Layla Virginia Montague. Montague like. is always a cool name. Yes, I don't know, I know why, but it really is. I know. And I, I kept her like maiden name in there because I wanted to say Montague. <laughs> yep. Um, he was educated at Lafayette College, the class of 1910, and at Columbia University, where he was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity. I then did some deep diving, and my undergrad also had a Sigma Chi uh, branch. Wait. What's the term? <laughs> Chapter. Chapter. There it is. I'm in a fraternity. It's fine. <laughs> so during his time at Columbia, Crater met Stella Wheeler, who was married at the time. But don't worry. He helped her get a divorce. Oh. And they were married in 1917. <laughs> Typical abuse of the justice wow. system. Was well, he a justice at this no, point? No, no, no. He was a lawyer. Law- he was like typical ad- he was- <laughs> abuse of the justice system. <laughs> he was, I think, technically still in law school at the time. Okay. So he began his career as a clerk, worked his way up to lawyer, and then became a justice of the New York Supreme Court for New York County. Fun fact, the New York Supreme Court isn't actually the highest court in the state. That honor belongs to the Court of Appeals. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Supreme Court is a little misleading. <laughs> For New York, anyway. Well, I, I guess there there needs to be some checks and balances on a court. One on would a Supreme think. Court. Continue. Anyway, <clears throat> while working his way up the New York law ladder, Crater made some influential friends, including Franklin D. Roosevelt, then governor of New York and future president of the United States. Wait, what? Yeah. Wow. Mm. Governor Roosevelt appointed Crater to the state bench in April of 1930. 
passing over the official candidate put forth by the powerful and <coughs> corrupt Tammany Hall political machine. Mm. Rumors swirled that Crater, whose alleged fondness for showgirls had already earned him a shady reputation. But who isn't fond of showgirls? Well, in this in this instance, being fond of showgirls is less fond of showgirls and more... Mm. More nefarious things yeah, is what bit. you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so the rumor was that he had paid off the Tammany bosses for his lucrative new job. So basically he bought himself a bench is the nice. theory. Yeah. Um, so during his short-lived time in office, Crater issued two published opinions, Rotkovitz versus Sohn involving fraudulent conveyances and mortgage foreclosure fraud, and Henderson v. Park, Central Motor Service, Dealing with a garage company's liability for an expensive car that was stolen and wrecked by an ex-convict. Nice. So not exactly earth-shattering stuff here. Nope, nope. No. So, during the summer of 1930, you know, when the court's on a break, because the court gets school holidays, apparently, (laughs) (laughs) Crater and Stella traveled north to their summer cabin in Belgrade, Maine. Which is why I picked this topic. Uh-huh. <laughs> just kidding. That's not it. That was just a happy coincidence. Don't, don't listen to her. Just kidding. If you're just starting here. Nah. In late July, Crater received a telephone call and shockingly offered no information about who the call was from or what it was about to his wife. It was the 1930s after all. That was sarcasm in case anyone uh-huh, questioned uh-huh. it. Got it. Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. There were so, eyebrow movements. Yes. Yeah. But listeners can't can't see that. They can just hear it dripping from my voice. <laughs> I think they can hear your eyebrow movements. My eyebrow movements are quite loud. That's why I could never do Botox. I need I need those puppies. <laughs> I need to use them. <laughs> anyway, he told her that he needed to return to New York to, quote, straighten those fellows out. And the next day he arrived at his apartment at 40th Fifth Avenue. Yeah. What a, what a street. Yep. Good old New York. In Green- Greenwich Village. But instead of dealing with business, he proceeded onward to Atlantic City, New Jersey with his mistress, showgirl, Sally Lou Ritzy, who mm. went by the stage name Ritz. So he then returned to Maine on August 1st, only to return to New York on the 3rd. That's a lot of traveling, especially considering it takes about six and a half hours by car today to go from New York City to Belgrade. Um, I can't even imagine how long it would have taken either by train back then or by car back then. Yeah, a while. Yeah. So before departing for New York on the 3rd, Crater promised Stella that he would return in time for her birthday on August 9th. But that was a promise he wouldn't be able to keep. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. Crater arrived in New York sometime between August 3rd and August 6th. His law clerk, Joseph Mara, later reported that on the morning of August 6th, the judge spent several hours going through his files in his chambers and then destroyed some documents. He sent Mara to cash two checks for him that amounted to $5,150 at the time, so like 83000 in today's money. Yeah. Um, and then he had Mara help him move several portfolios of papers in locked briefcases to his, his Fifth Avenue apartment before he gave Mara the rest of the day off. Hmm, Sketchy. Okay, okay. For, like a constant overworker. Uh, that evening, Crater left his office, bought a ticket to the Broadway comedy Dancing Partner at the Belasco Theater, and shared a meal with his lawyer friend William Klein and his mistress, Ritz. Uh, so Klein and Ritz don't appear to have been the most reliable of witnesses. However, as they originally told police independently, so like separated from each other, that Crater had gotten into a taxi cab after they left the restaurant. But then they later changed their story and said that they had actually gotten into the taxi together 
And that crater had walked down the street. Hmm. So we're already just getting questions upon yep. questions. Yeah. So Crater's disappearance went unnoticed for the most part, with his wife simply calling around to his friends after he didn't return to Maine after 10 days. Only when he failed to appear for the opening of court on August 25th did his fellow justices become alarmed. <laughs> he was gone for almost a month before anyone cared enough to raise the alarm and contact the police. No love. Nah, it doesn't seem so. So they started a private investigation but failed to find any trace of him. And the police were finally notified on September 3rd. And after... They started an investigation without <clears throat> notifying the police? The court, the, like, justices, I guess, started, like, their own little... They wanted to find him before the news found him is what it really was. I have the impression that they thought he was probably doing something really sketchy. Yeah, and uh, given the fact that they didn't really care to search for him in the beginning, they probably didn't love the sketchy stuff he was doing either. So, okay, never mind. This is all piecing together Yeah, really it all, nicely. It all yep. tracks. <laughs> so after the police were finally notified on September 3rd, the missing judge became front page news. His sensational story captured so much media attention that the phrase pulling a crater briefly entered the public vernacular as a synonym for going AWOL. I love that. (laughs) I'm going to pull a crater. We are using that in our other podcast for sure. It's the best. I have no idea. I love it so much. (laughs) So once an official investigation was launched, detectives discovered that the judge's safe deposit box had been emptied and the two briefcases that Crater and Mara had taken to his apartment were missing. Shocking. Uh Uh-huh. Unfortunately, these potential leads were buried under the thousands of false reports of people citing Crater all over New York and further afield. After Crater's disappearance, the truth of his escapades also came to light. I'm excited. (laughs) Spill that tea. Yeah, right. That almost 100-year-old tea, Kylie. (laughs) I know. It's such up-to-date news. So Ritz, the showgirl, left New York in August or September of the same year that he disappeared and returned home to live with her parents. When police finally caught up to her at the end of September, she said that she had left New York suddenly because she had received word that her father was ill. Um, She continued to be periodically interviewed by police into 1937. So like seven years of being just randomly interviewed by them. Um, another showgirl, June Bryce, had been seen talking to Crater the day before he disappeared. A lawyer acting for Crater's wife believed that Bryce had been at the center of a scheme to blackmail Crater, which would explain why he had taken all that money out of the bank, and that a gangster boyfriend of Bryce's had killed the judge. Oh. Womp womp. Yeah, big womp womp. Bryce coincidentally disappeared the day that a grand jury was to convene on the case. Mm. In 1948, she was discovered in a mental hospital. Either confined there of her own volition or more likely not of her own volition to keep her quiet. Mm, uh, mm, Now mm. I'm... Stuff is being put together in my head now. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But now it's like, oh, no, Mm -hmm. I know why. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just out here making my own conspiracy theory. (laughs) But either way, she really wasn't a reliable witness, even if she had been involved. And either way, you got me to buy in. So So the final woman involved in Judge Crater's disappearance was a woman named Vivian Gordon, who was allegedly a high-end sex worker and linked to the infamous madam and later author of A House is Not a Home, Pearl Polly Adler. So she goes by Polly. Gordon had liaisons with a large number of influential business people and as the owner, at least on paper, of a number of properties believed to actually be fronts for illegal activity. Go figure. Um, She was also seen around town with the gangster Jack Legs Diamond, 
Also, why would you go by legs if your name is Jack Diamond? I was about to say I would absolutely go by legs, but Jack Diamond is a pretty good That's name. That's a great name. Like, yeah. don't ruin it, dude. Does he have anyway. any connections to Atlantic City like uh, the other guy did? Because, my God, name being Jack Diamond right? and being in a casino area. Right. All I know is that he was a gangster around New York. So, I mean, it's not that far away, probably. <laughs> like, it's like, dude really just wanted a second nickname because his real name was just too cool. His real name is Jack Diamond, and he just was like, I need a nickname because my real name is awesome. I wonder if he had really great legs or if he just liked really great legs. I feel like both are very plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Jack Legs Diamond was also rumored to be an acquaintance of Crater's. Crater had known Diamond's former boss, organized crime figure Arnold Rothstein, and had been extremely upset at Rothstein's murder in 1928 which I'm probably going to cover in another episode another time because I just briefly looked at him and went, ooh, this sounds very interesting. Good, good. So, on February 20th, 20th, 1931, Gordon, angry about the loss of custody of her 16-year-old daughter, met the head of an official inquiry into city government corruption, which was launched in the wake of Crater's disappearance, and offered to testify for the Seabury Commission about police graft, which is a form of political corruption um, where you, like, basically use your authority for personal gain. Like, everyone does. <laughs> that That is, like, the most obvious. Well, what? they didn't like it in the 30s, apparently. Yeah. So she informed the investigators that women were falsely arrested and accused of prostitution by the New York City Police Department. Then officers were given more money in their paychecks in exchange for, you know, bringing in these prostitutes. Yep, 100% believe it. Yep. After her testimony, Gordon was suspiciously found strangled in a park in the Bronx. Yep, zero, zero surprise here. Nope, yep. The publicity surrounding her killing led to the resignation of a policeman whom she had accused of framing her for her prostitution charge and the suicide of her daughter, which is very unfortunate. Um, Tammany Hall's hold on the city was largely eliminated in the ensuing scandal, as it was already fairly weakened by Rothstein's death and the conflict over his um, former empire. The Seabury Commission and Gordon's resulting death also led to the resignation of Mayor Jimmy Walker in 1932 after public opinion heavily turned on him. Is that where the term I'm walking here came from? I doubt it. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) You think you're so funny. Um, So in October of 1930, a grand jury began examining the Crater case, calling 95 witnesses and amassing 975 pages of testimony. Wow. Yeah. That's big. Yup. The conclusion was that, quote, the evidence is insufficient to warrant any expression of opinion as to whether Crater is alive or dead or is the sufferer from disease in the nature of amnesia or is the victim of crime. So basically they were like, we don't know where he went, and we yeah. don't know why he went. We got no idea. We'll we'll pin that on amnesia if we really got to, because we just want to be done with this. There, There is no evidence to know if a crime has been committed or not. So we're just going to throw our hands in the air and go, nah, I don't know. So at the time, some theorized that Crater had left town with another woman or fled to avoid re- revelations of corruption. Shocking. But the case's extensive publicity would have made it extremely difficult for him to begin a new life somewhere else, because like his face was plastered all over the papers. Yeah, but it's very easy to change your name away from Force Crater and have no one bat an eye. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Because that one sounds like the fake name. Yeah, it really does. (laughs) Um, So there was also speculation that Crater had actually died in Polly Adler's brothel. And then they all like covered it up 
On January 20th, 1931, six months after his disappearance, Crater's wife Stella found envelopes containing checks, stocks, bonds, and a note from the judge in a dresser drawer in their Greenwich apartment, which had been empty when it was initially searched by the police. So somehow something got in there. Mm, Must have been a mice. Maybe, or it was a crater. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So the discovery led to new but ultimately inconclusive leads, and no further trace of crater has ever been found. Wow, okay. The case was officially closed in 1979. Life for Stella Crater after her husband's disappearance was not easy. Without his income, she was unable to maintain their Fifth Avenue apartment and was evicted. She petitioned to have the judge declared officially dead in July of 1937, and it was reported that she was living on the $12 a week, or about 239 in 2022, um, that she had earned as a telephone operator in Maine. Less than a thousand, that's under a thousand dollars a month in today's money. Ugh. Yeah. And I know Maine's cheap, but it's not that cheap, even back then. <laughs> like, yeah. Possibly driven by a financial need, Stella married Carl Kuntz, a New York electrical contractor in Elkton, Maryland, on April 23rd, 1938. Kuntz's first wife, I'm assuming they were divorced, I'm hoping they were divorced, had committed suicide only eight days before the wedding. Oh, no. Which is why I'm hoping they were divorced. And it yeah. wasn't, she Related. committed suicide, and then they were like, let's get married. <laughs> Because I don't like that even more. (laughs) Let's move on. Um, So Crater was finally declared legally dead in 1939, and Stella received $20,561 in life insurance, which would be about $430,000 in 2022. Wow, for Crater's death made a pretty big impact. I hate you. (laughs) I hate you so much. Anyway, Stella separated from Kuntz in 1950 and died in 1969 at the age of 70. However, in 1961, Stella had expressed her belief that her husband had been murdered in her own account of the case called uh, titled The Empty Robe, which was written with freelance writer and journalist Oscar Fraley and published by Doubleday. In 2005, authorities revealed that they had received a handwritten note from an elderly woman who had recently died in which she claimed that her husband and several other men, including... New York Police Department officer Charles Burns, who had also worked as a bodyguard for Murder, Inc. enforcer Abe Relis. Oh, we talked about Murder, Inc. Uh, Yeah, I covered um, the Anastasia, for whatever his name was. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, So, theoretically, he worked as a bodyguard for him, um, but her note alleged that her husband and this police officer and a couple of others had actually murdered Crater and buried his body near West 8th Street in Coney Island. At the current site of the New York Aquarium. Oh. Bah, bah, bah. So police reported that no records had been found to indicate that skeletal remains had been discovered at the site when it was excavated to build the aquarium in 1950. And Richard J. Toffel, the author of Vanishing Point, The Disappearance of Judge Crater and the New York He Left Behind, expressed skepticism at the authenticity of this claim. Yeah, so, I mean, I would too, because it's pretty hard to get a really solid structural foundation on top of a crater. Fuck, <laughs> Jonathan, <laughs> I should have known yeah. from the grin you uh, uh. had as you started to say that. Oh, my gosh. So with no solid leads and most of the people involved in the case having passed, the disappearance of Judge Joseph Force Crater will likely always remain a mystery. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, I had fun with that one. So 
You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. Mm-hmm. You can go to our email and send us a message at <laughs> halfwitpod at gmail.com. Recovered. <laughs> yes, please send us a message. <laughs> um, if you have any topic suggestions or anything like that, anything you'd really love for us to cover, let us know. We'll... We'd love to have suggestions and feedback and be able to cover things you guys are interested in. We also have a Google form that's pinned to the top of our Twitter if you yes, go there. Yes, do that. So that is an easy way to send us little suggestions yeah. of what you want to know more about or share with the world that you think maybe people don't know that well. Yeah. And thank you to The Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Is it time for fun facts? It is. The fun fact time. My fun fact is that on August 31st of 1985, the Night Stalker, a serial killer uh, that was suspected to have terrorized California and East Los Angeles, was captured by literally an entire neighborhood chasing him down. (laughs) And I looked into this because I'm like, that's funny. And the way that it happened, which I'm certain that a bunch of people already know, because Kylie has informed me that this is a well-known serial killer. I love that you put serial killer in quotation marks, too. Like, you made the finger marks of, like, making a quotation. Oh, did I? I didn't do it. Serial killer! Nope, he was a serial killer. I don't know why I did that. Um, but I, I looked it up because I'm like, what was this? What do you mean entire neighborhood? And what happened was he was traveling and he had not known that he was like national news when it happened. Yeah. He didn't realize that yeah. people had, that like the police had actually out. figured out who he was. So he was like blissfully unaware. I yeah. was like, no one knows. He like walked into <laughs> a store and then he saw like some old ladies like chatting and looking at him weird. And he's like, oh no, the old ladies will get me because Suspicion. that's how it always works. So he like. He, he saw that and he's like, this is weird. And then he ended up seeing his face in the store <laughs> and he's like, oh no, this is bad, not weird. Uh-huh. And he like went to go run away and went to like steal a car. And at that point, he must have been acting panicked enough because uh, a, a woman opened the car door and pulled him out of the car and her husband came around the corner with a fence post uh-huh. and hit him over the head. And then about 10 or so other people ended up gathering and just... Beating, beating him up beating just, him up yeah just beating him up and by the time police got there <laughs> there was a crowd of estimated to be over 700 people surrounding the 10 plus people that were getting in kicks who knows how many of that 700 were actually you know taking taking the shots that they could right yeah i i can't imagine 700 people would actually have been able to get in get in close enough to actually like hurt him but I would assume at that point he was probably like, oh, thank goodness. The police are going to take me out of this. (laughs) Yeah, apparently he was not in a good state when he was uh, taken out by the police. And uh, all I can say is that I really hope that at least one of those old ladies got him with a shoe or a purse Mm -hmm. while he was down there. I was thinking the purse, yeah. Um, Well, I think they were were, uh, Central American. Or I, I actually no, because they were they were in Southern California, and a lot of the names were Spanish in origin. So yeah. it would absolutely be a Schnella, or, <laughs> or a Schnella is Portuguese, a Chocla. <laughs> the shoe, the shoe thing. The shoe, yeah, yeah. Um, all I'm gonna say is he deserved it. Absolutely. <laughs> Anyways, what's anyway. your fun fact? <laughs> um, in terms of uh, another crime, <laughs> so my fun fact is from September second of 1798. Um. On that day, it was discovered that the Bank of Pennsylvania had been robbed of $162,000, and the bank was at Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia. This would be the first bank robbery in the United States. Turns out the carpenter um, that had been hired to oversee the bank's move into Carpenter Hall 
had brought a stranger with him, and it was the two of them that had robbed the bank. Nice. Yeah. However, in the dumbest move ever, the stranger, Uh Isaac Davis, began depositing the missing money in the very bank that he had stolen it from, and that's how he got caught. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and the, um, the... the carpenter that had been um, hired to do it had actually like died like three or like two weeks after the heist from yellow fever. So, oh, so Davis was the only one, and then he went and did that dumb move. Lonely, so. oh so lonely. Yeah, so he's got no money because he's dumb. <laughs> and like, arguably, seventeen ninety eight, he absolutely would have gotten away with it. Oh yeah, if, if it wasn't a- for those rascally kids and their dog too. <laughs> Yes, well, if he hadn't deposited it in the same bank he stole it from. Yeah, they wouldn't have been able to really trace it, at least not for a while. Yeah, and by that time, he would have been old and wouldn't have cared anymore. Well, that that is fun. (laughs) Well, as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye.